This conversation is a in-person conversation I had with my friend Nathan Ross Reese, and it was a long and multifactorial, multifaceted conversation where we really just um, had a natural chat. We didn't have any particular topic in mind, so we meandered our, around all uh, all directions around the central theme of Pilates, and we talked about business. Uh, teaching skills, strengthening, purpose, mission, personal growth, um, finance and money, and uh, being authentic to yourself, uh, as well as some forays into my uh, teenage uh, reading preferences and uh, some uh, romantic and classical musical theory. So, uh, I think you're going to enjoy this one. It was a very authentic conversation. Um, we both shared a lot of stuff, uh, and I think you'll find it very valuable. So without further ado, Nathan Ross Reese. Oh, there is one other thing. <laughs> this conversation was a long one, so we've split it into two parts, and part two will be out next episode. Hello, and welcome to another episode of Pilates Elephants with me, your host, Raphael Bender. I'm uh, very pleased to be here today with my friend Nathan Ross Reese. Nathan, how you going, Ross? Thanks for having me, mate. Yeah, glad to, glad to be here with you. And I, I don't know, the, the, I haven't done an in-person podcast for a couple of years at least. I do do them all um, via Zoom these days. So here we are, physically sitting IRL in the same room together. <laughs> yeah, it's uh, it's also a new experience for me. Um, what I think is also cool is we had the chance to do a workout together earlier today, and um, I got the chance to try out the gym, um, and basically Raf has got like all the equipment you can imagine down there, including a reformer, um, and I said to Raf, hey, I just love to do what you do. I want to see how you work out, um, so we just did a lot of real heavy stuff, basically, yeah. <laughs> it was awesome. And then we did uh, your nice little ab series at the end there. Yeah, yeah, something a little bit uh, for the abs, but uh, yeah, I appreciate the um, invitation and uh it's also good generally just to see other people train because you just get so many ideas and and different like body positioning cues speed of movement stuff like that like the way you're moving today like the speed in which you're doing the exercises uh i thought that was interesting because it's a bit faster than i normally move so yeah. it's good um i move fast when i work out because uh when you move as you move as fast as you can so you, your intention is to move as fast as possible, uh, you get maximum motor unit recruitment. So you activate more fibres and generate more force. So And therefore you get more strength and more hypertrophy. So yeah. um, that's not to say that working slow can't be effective as well. But if you, particularly for, for strength development, um, and, uh, intentionally moving as fast as possible, particularly on the concentric, on the, on the lifting phase, um, does maximise the strength current. Hmm. I hear a lot of people uh, talking about slowing down the eccentric, like um, the lengthening phase. Is that something you're interested in as well? Uh, yeah, I mean, I, I have seen some literature on that that shows that there might be some benefit to slowing down the eccentric phase in terms of increasing hypertrophy, so like more more strength, not more necessarily, yeah, a bit more strength, but probably more about muscle growth um, to maximize muscle growth, which, dear listener, if you're listening to this, you know, if we said it in a more socially acceptable euphemism, we'd, we'd say tone, you know, better muscle tone. <laughs> okay, but the, there is no, in the science literature, in strength training, 
in exercise science, there's no such thing as toning. It's just hypertrophy. You can grow your muscles and you can strip fat off from on top of them and then you look toned. <laughs> so, um, it's like a ratio, isn't it? Right. Muscles so, so, yeah, so you can slow down the eccentric. Um, but, but, you know, I don't know. I, I feel um, there's also a benefit when you – so it depends what you're trying to achieve, right, because – uh, when you slow down the eccentric, yeah, you can you know, get more tension on the muscle, so therefore more stimulus. It's not a lot. It's a pretty small effect. Um, but uh, when you speed up the eccentric, you know, this is the lowering phase, um, you essentially basically bounce at the bottom of the movement, which generates more tender tension on your tendons, which means you, you increase the stiffness of your tendons, which increases uh, elastic energy storage in the tendons, which increases like power you know so basically when you when you when you go to do a, a like a jump in high in the air you ought you instinctively kind of squat down a bit before you jump up and you do that to kind of store energy in your tendons um or when you go to throw something you draw your arm back first and you do that you know part, part of that is to store energy in your tendons and so by doing a fast eccentric and kind of sort of bouncing at the bottom of the squat or bouncing at the bottom of the bicep curl or, or whatever you can increase that elastic energy so it's you know it's like depends what you're trying to achieve mm. Hmm. Yeah, yeah, it's good to, to try a different method of training every now and then too to give yourself a bit of a challenge. Yeah, well, yeah. I'm, look, I'm looking forward to and dreading with an equal part when I come around and uh, you, we do your workout. <laughs> <laughs> um, so uh, it's a rare treat to be in the same city as you and I've watched, uh, you know, with, with pleasure as I see you, you know, giving workshops in every you know, corner of the world, <laughs> seemingly. I mean, you've just come. You've just come back from Europe. Is that right? Yeah. So, um, the it was pretty much like a tour around Australia, um, and then Dubai was the first international one. Then it was forty in America, twenty through the UK and uh, Ireland. Went to Europe, um, back to Australia, New Zealand, and now I'm going to kickstart it trip up the east coast which is randomly going to south uh, south america too um for like a weekend so yeah it's 94 workshops so far completed um so i think the last time we had a conversation uh i was discussing with you my intention to be like international with my workshop and and now it's just like kind of like completing that circle now it's kind of like that's been done so it's um yeah, it's been a, a, a pretty well, intentional progression. I've, I've tried to basically step-by-step step try to figure it out um, by just lots of conversations with different people and um, and building like a bit of a community that seems to have grown now. So, mm. yeah. And so what would you say have been the biggest, I guess, inflection points or learning, you know, moments or realisations for you along that journey? Because... You know, fire, I don't know how many years ago, anything below before last week is just a haze to me. But, you know, a short while ago, a couple of years ago, you were just a like humble instructor teaching in the humble studio in Tasmania. Yep. And now you're, I, I don't know the actual numbers, but my guess would be you've done close to the same, more workshops than any other Pilates instructor in the history of Pilates. You know, so, yeah, so like, so what have been the big sort of learning inflection points along that journey for you so far? Um, I think it's, you can have an analogy which is similar to resistance training. The, uh, 
the more conversations you have, the more opportunities you have to listen to different points of view. So whenever you're met with potentially um, a contrast in opinion, it forces you to articulate your message in a much clearer way. So, you, uh, And then you begin to anticipate what people might um, not understand. So you, you kind of like every time I'd have a workshop, I'd come back from it and I'd be kind of going back through what landed, what didn't land. And I'd say it's the same process as teaching because if you're reviewing how your class performance was and what worked and what didn't work, it's just the same idea except you have the potential now to um, positively influence more people because uh, that's the idea. One of my biggest motivators for, for doing the workshop was that I, I felt like my capacity was limited when I was an instructor, that I could only teach or reach so many people in person. Um, but being able to take it and train trainers instead, like the amount of real people that these trainers are going to be actually interacting with has like this positive flow and effect. And when you can actually help instructors with some like first principles of effective reformer workouts, which get results for people, like that it really has a huge impact on their confidence and their confidence and their competence are connected. So they're going to show up better. They're going to be more motivated, more excited when they teach. And it's just about having the awareness of what's actually the most relevant and important things to look out for in the room. Mm. Um, a lot of, I feel like, the more traditional teaching methods have forced people to think, um, which kind of puts people in their own head rather than teaching people about awareness, about uh, taking space and time to observe and to adjust based on what's happening. And one thing I want to kind of share with people is the idea that before you even teach an exercise, you have to have such a clear intention about what you're actually trying to do so that when it isn't going the way you want it to, you can recognise it, you can adapt it. Um, so my reference point when I'm teaching an exercise is I'm focusing on the muscle group that we're targeting because I believe that's the most objective way to see whether we actually achieve that or not. Um, the reality is, is in a group full of people, You've got all these different variables like different um, body mass, different body length. Um, for me, to be able to guarantee everyone's working the same muscle group at the same level of intensity, if I don't have a reference point which is like objective, then there's no way I can control it. So, yeah, my message is basically every exercise will have um, some kind of result. There'll be a muscle group that was loaded from it. And then if you work it hard enough, you might hit mechanical tension. You, um, you might work them to fatigue. The idea is to know in advance which muscle group you actually want people to to have worked out from that exercise. And you can just articulate that from the start. And you can make sure that everyone is in a body position where they're guaranteed to feel that muscle group. And you kind of prevent things which would stop that from happening. Because sometimes we so might... I'm just going to jump in there and say, um, so there's, there's a few things I want to unpack there, but I want to start with the notion of what you just said there about putting someone in a body position, putting people in a body position where you can guarantee that the, the, the muscle groups that you want to target are in fact the ones under load. Yep. And I think that is something that, you know, I mean, I don't know, you know, to one extent the listeners of this program, you know, fall into this category, but I know that a lot of Pilates instructors, and when I first started out, I was, I didn't have that notion that, that targeting muscles was about body position so much as I had it. It was like you tell the client 
verbally which muscles to activate. And that's how you get the muscles working. It's like by telling them to activate your adductors or pull up your kneecaps or draw in your belly button or, you know, other cues like that, you know, squeeze your glutes, um, rather than putting them in a position where that muscle's under load. So, yeah, so tell me, walk, walk me through why you don't cue muscles and why instead you put people in positions where there's mechanical tension on those muscles. Yeah, so my strategy is I want to basically identify the muscle group we're targeting um, and then with the reformer, there's only two forms of load. It's either more tension's harder, so spring tension will be the challenge and that's the progression, or less tension's harder, so your body weight's the load. So you can do one exercise, but uh, depending on the, the tension you have, it may actually make it a bodyweight exercise or um, which affects how you actually move. Like if you're doing a, a standing split, one foot on the platform, one foot on the carriage with a light spring, as the carriage moves out, the inner thighs are loaded when your legs are straight. So that's an inner thigh exercise. But if we add tension on, now it becomes significant enough, you actually have to push the carriage. Now it's the outer thighs. So my message is it's actually so objective that it doesn't matter what I say. All I have to know is exactly what position to put you in with what tension, and I know which muscle group is going to be required. Right. So, so, yeah, I mean, when you put it that way, it's, it really is, uh, I think it's a great way of, of thinking about it, that if I'm doing a side split, standing side split, and I've got like two full springs on, like a heavy spring, right, and so I'm pushing that carriage out, you know, it doesn't matter how much you tell me to activate my inner thighs, it's like, <laughs> that's not an inner thigh exercise. That's right. So, yeah. whereas on the other on the other side, like if you put on a quarter spring, it's like doesn't tell me how much you, doesn't matter how much you tell me to relax my inner thighs. It's like they're not going to relax, right? Yes. Yeah. yeah, it's just understanding about which part of the body will be um, required to either support you or what part of the body will be required to to move the carriage. You know, mm. so. That kind of intention, it actually happens before the exercise has started. Mm-hmm. So it's so calculated and so intentional. Um, and what I find is when you give the instructors that kind of insight, they actually become so much more relaxed when they're teaching because mm-hmm. it's not just they have to remember a whole bunch of things to say. Mm-hmm. It's actually like it's already like the game plan is in their mind. Um, so it de-emphasizes cueing to a certain extent. And of course, you have to cue the people into the right position. Yep. But it de-emphasizes cueing to a certain extent and shifts that emphasis to positioning and load. Yep. Uh, basically, um, my intention is to streamline the process of communication where it actually takes the least amount of time possible for you to start moving. So I'll go basically give you the name and the exercise, the springs you need, the props, um, the body positioning you need to be in to actually start the exercise and then basically move. Mm. And That's like when you arrived here for your workout today. It's like within 15 seconds of walking in the door, we were in the gym. <laughs> Straight into it. <laughs> I was like, well, Nathan, do you want a coffee? It's like, nah, <laughs> let's work out. Let's go. <laughs> yeah, straight to it. Um, like like uh, the reason I believe in in that is because you know, we have a limited time, so the least amount of time we spend not moving, the better the outcome will be. Right. So also if I can be predictable with how I deliver information, people can preempt things. Um, and the order of information is important because if I say things out of order, you might have to wait until I say the thing you needed to hear. For example, if I tell you the springs but I don't tell you what we're doing, you yeah. can't choose what we're 
what to do. You don't want two springs. It's like, okay, what are we doing? We're doing arms, you know, in which case I'll choose one, or are we doing, you know, outer thighs, in which case I'll choose two, or yeah. (laughs) And and it's the same with dumbbells, people don't know which one to pick, and that's why they always go light because they just they might not trust you that you're actually giving them an exercise they can do with that weight, so they just benefit the doubt and they go with light because at least they're better every movement pattern with it. So, the idea is just to completely minimize the transition time to maximize the movement time, which is just naturally going to get you a better result. and all these things are like intentional and it's actually just a, a skill set which anyone can learn. It's just about being efficient with your energy and your time. And I want to treat the entire workout like what's the best return on the investment of energy that I can provide. Like I actually want to say the least amount possible and I want to spend most of my time engaging with people on a more of a personal level, one-on-one connection, encouragement, smiling, eye contact, enthusiasm, things which are memorable that people actually care about and um, that has like a performance enhancing effect which really has like a really positive effect on client retention because mm. actually you know who they are but well, you can't so, I'm sorry I'm going to jump in there again because you said two things there and I want to come back to what you said about uh, engagement because I, there's, I, there's something that really occurred to me there I want to talk about that but first I want to talk to you uh, just ask what you when you said results right so you yep. wanted what gets the result so in your definition what do you mean by results? Yep. So I like to think if you're going to go to the effort of putting someone in a body position with a spring, what is the outcome of that? Like um, to think about the outcome in advance, like we're going to work that muscle group to mechanical tension. That's the outcome we want. Now, if every single exercise, that's the outcome, that means the entire workout's effective. And then they're going to get stronger. Yeah. So the, it's actually like a, a really simple focus where you just have to guarantee that if you go to the effort of putting someone in a body position with a certain spring, there has to be a result. That's that's it. And then to do and that... So the, sorry, the result is tension on the muscle, which then ultimately the ultimate result of is they get stronger. That's right. And then you can go down the pathway of like progressive overload over time. Um, you can adapt it so they continually challenge. So basically you have to be in a position long enough with enough load to get an outcome. Kind of like cooking. It has to be hot enough for long enough. So um, that's why I don't really want to change people out of exercises in a rush. Unless you're eating sushi. <laughs> what? Unless you're eating sushi. Why? It's raw. Oh. That's going to straight over my head. Um, I, got, I want to basically put everyone in a position which is achievable and then scale the intensity on the muscle group we're targeting um, intentionally so that every level of ability within the room is met with a challenge at some point. So it doesn't benefit anyone if I put you in a position which is too hard from the start and half the room fails in the first 30 seconds because as the instructor then you you conflicted. You're like, oh, what do I do? Do I change it early or do I uh, force these people to do something they can't do? But mm. that situation we actually unintentionally created for ourselves. So like, it doesn't have to be that way. You can, all you have to do is start it in a position everyone can do. Right, and we've we've talked about this. I've talked about this with Heath on the podcast before. I think you and I have talked about it as well. It's basically what we call to bring this layered teaching. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm not sure what you call it, but basically it means starting when you're teaching a group of more than one person, you start with an exercise you're very confident everyone can do. Yep. And then you see how they do it. And if they do it, looks like it's relatively easy, you go, okay, great, let's do a harder version. And you keep doing that until they basically can't do it. And then you're done. Yep. Yep. Um, as opposed to like when I first learned, I first I learned, okay, you teach the exercise, and if someone's struggling, then you modify it, which means you make it easier for that person. So it's kind of 
the reverse mm. of that. Yeah. Well, the the reason I like to start at the achievable position and scale it up is it means you can guarantee that every person in the room is going to get a good experience. Right. They get um, to win. Yeah. So, you know, you're putting them in a position which they can do for the full duration. And I'm thinking about a three-minute duration on average for an exercise. And it's enough time for you to be in it. You can actually start to learn it too. Like you can kind of get familiar with the movement pattern. Yeah. Um, it's enough time for me to explain what we're actually trying to do. So it's educational for the clients because next time they come back to it, they're going to have more chance of remembering it because they actually did it for longer. Um, right. But because as the instructor, you've literally got the control of how hard it is. Everything we can do, we can adapt it, you know, like um, the observation is so important because for me to actually make it harder, all I have to do is be aware of how hard you're actually working. Like I don't need to make it um, much, much harder if everyone's already maxing out right now, you know. So that's why I really want to get people away from the idea of having to teach for some kind of script of things I have to say. It's more about having an attention and just being there fully present and your observation will tell you the things you need to do. Um, so if you've got people in the room that are capable of more, then you just the skill set as the instructor is you know how to adapt uh, their body in the machine to make it harder. Right. You know? So you're just walking around and you go, hey, Mary, I think you need to add on another half spring or Mary, I think you need to go a bit further into this one or whatever. Yeah. So to break that one down, you could basically say the reformer with the spring tension, there's only really two ways to progress it. Either heavy is harder or less tension is harder. Heavy is harder, spring tension is to load. Less tension, harder, body weight is to load. Now, anything you do... Um, to change the spring stretch will have an effect on how hard it is. Right. Um, so if you stand with you, if you're doing, say, a lunge with one foot on the floor, one foot on the carriage, if you stand with the floor, foot on the floor further towards the foot bar end of the reformer, you get less carriage travel, therefore less spring tension, less, therefore less support, therefore it's harder. Yeah, I mean, an example of that in a plank would be if you're doing like a wheelbarrow, say hands on the bar, um, shoulders, like arms straight, um, knees down, feet in the shoulder pads, and you hinge at the shoulders and you slide back, loading up your abdominals so we've got a light spring. If you were to just reposition yourself where you lift the feet up, walk your knees backwards, and reposition your ankles on top of the shoulder pads, the distance your knees have moved back is the distance the spring will stretch less. You know, if you intentionally change the spring stretch as a progression strategy. So there's so many progression strategies, um, particularly with body weight. Um, so, yeah, with body weight you can... Uh, change the spring obviously less tension's harder you can change the spring stretch intentionally um, you can change uh, the amount of your own body weight you have to support like the difference between doing a plank on the knees and the toes so you just put more mass on the muscle group or on the abdominals for example or you can change the time and attention I can put you in a position where that muscle group is working for longer with less rest all those things combined like there's not a single person you can't look after all you have to do is just put people in a position which they can do at the start and the, I think the biggest confusing point for new instructors is they're taught exercises, but they're not taught about um, in, a, in a group class setting, is this going to be achievable for different types of people? Like if you take a standard exercise like a, a skater, you're basically in like a, a squat and you're pushing laterally, pushing the so carriage out. Standing out in like a side split position, one foot on the platform, one foot on the carriage. Yeah, so basically you're... Uh, both your knees are bent and you're kind of in the bottom of a squat position and then you're just like pushing the carriage away from you. That's basically like, you can say it's like a wall set. It's like, so your quads and your glutes are loaded. 
So if I ask you to do a wall sit right now, after 40 seconds, your legs are going to be on fire. So if we start the skater like that, you're going to see like an attrition rate. You're going to see it's going to be like survivor. People start to fail at different speeds and it's based on how strong they are, you know. And um, so instead of being like that, you can reverse engineer it. You can start in a position which is easier like a squat and then you can start to add in more time at the bottom by like controlling how many skaters you make them do. One of the... um one of the things that we see in when we're teaching instructors in a certification program, when people are like first learning to program, like they're just getting grappling with, you know, putting together a program, is they program stuff that they obviously haven't done it. So they'll do like, we do the 100 for five minutes or something like that. And you're like, yeah, I'm pretty sure you haven't done that yourself because if you had, you'd realise that that's not going <laughs> to that's not gonna work. Yeah. Um, and so I think, you know, one of the best pieces of advice I can give on this is just like do the freaking workout yourself. Like if you think we can do, you know, skater for three minutes, like, okay, do skater for three minutes <laughs> and then tell me if you think that's a good <laughs> exercise. Yeah. 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 And, and also like the empathy of understanding what it's like to be a different body than your own. Yeah. Because I feel like a, another challenge for new instructors is that – Particularly, you could say, on average, they're quite young and quite fit. So they might not know what it feels like to be overweight or feel, know what it feels like to be um, maybe a significantly different body mass than maybe the average spring tension is uh, designed for. Right. So uh, even if you're not overweight, even if you're just like a bigger yeah. person, right? Tall, oh, that's tall, a better way to say muscular it. or, or yep. whatever. Uh, yeah, like a, a plank on a half spring if you weigh 100 kilos – is very, very different to a plank on a half spring if you weigh 50 kilos. Yeah, that's it. You know, like understanding that, being able to like um, have the ability to see how someone's going and know what they're feeling. Um, and, you know, sometimes people rely on facial expressions, but I find that, you know, you got some people that are expressive when they're actually fatiguing and other people go internal, you can't see much. I think you're definitely the one that goes like internal. You tend to kind of go all quiet and determined. Um, that's, but, that's years of martial arts training. You get told not to show it. Yeah, yeah. yeah. A lot of people like that. Um, so rather than like relying on that, what I look at is the speed of their movement and the range of motion they're achieving because you can tell if it's too much load for someone if they can't get a full range or not. Yeah. So you just basically you just have to understand what's harder. Is slower harder because we're using body weight as the load? So what range of motion is more optimal? Um, that's what we want to see. Um, and if they can't achieve that, they might need more support. Yeah. I want to pivot back to what you said before about being present in the room and so and minimising your instructions, minimising the amount of you know, talking that you're doing about the exercise per se. Yep. So that you can spend you you can uh, you can focus on the clients and building a connection with them and interacting with them on a human level and remembering their names and their kids' names and all the rest of it. And it you know, strikes me as like, you know, I mean, I'm sure, you know, if you're listening to this, you're not thinking like, oh, I've never heard anyone say that before. That's, you know, amazing revelation. But, you know, like just thinking about that, like when I, I, I scroll through YouTube and I'm, I'm not sure, listener or Nathan, if you've noticed this, but a lot of people are using AI of overdubs or voice now. Like mm-hmm. there'll be like a YouTube, you know, video. It's about the history of X, Y, Z or whatever. And some cartoon, and it's like, it's an AI voice, and, and you can hear it's an AI. There's probably some that I can't tell the difference, but the ones where I can tell, I'm like, yeah, this isn't, for some reason, just lacks 
connection for me. I don't, I don't enjoy when I when I think it's an AI voice. It turns me off, and I don't even if the content's interesting to me. I'd much rather listen to somebody I like discussing that topic. And dear listener, I imagine that if 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 you're listening to this, mate, imagine if Nathan and I were two computers in AI voices giving you this exact same information. We might be. I'd like to think it wouldn't be as enjoyable for you. <laughs> so I think like when we're teaching class, I think it's the, the same principle applies. It's not just about, you know, downloading the information from your mouth to their ear. You know, it's because they could just read a blog post about it. You know, it's a it's about a human connection, mm. and and ultimately, yes, people want to move. Yes, they want to get stronger. Absolutely, but why don't they just do push ups on their lounge room floor? Because that would achieve that result. Well, it's because they need human connection, and that helps them stay motivated and accountable and excited, and you know, makes it more joyful, basically, yep. and more meaningful to them. Definitely. There, also, if you. As an instructor, when you're teaching to a group class, inevitably you'll notice that there's some people that respond really well to you and other people that don't respond as well. And I always like to kind of observe that and think, okay, at the moment potentially me and this person or these people, we don't have a lot of rapport yet. So I'm going to actually make up that ground now. I'm going to intentionally get to know them more. And as soon as you hit like a threshold – all of a sudden they become the easiest person to teach. So it's like they don't really care what you know until they know how much you care. So the goal is to try and get to know these people. Um, and eventually it's like you're just teaching your friends and it's like the most fun experience ever. But I don't want to kind of be – I don't want to be standoffish and and kind of just go through teaching classes without the feeling that I actually know everybody. I want to I cultivate that. My intention is to – basically know everybody's name within the first 15 minutes and have said everyone's name probably two to three times. Um, in a reformist studio, it's actually quite easy because everyone's got a fixed position. So when you look at the room, you can, you can kind of go, well, I know those people, I don't know that person. So you can kind of like, one of my strategies, I like to start on the on the, on the like the, on one side and work my way across the room um, until I actually get to know everybody. And do you, how do you so how do you learn their names? Like when do you stand at the front desk when they walk in and look at them and check in and go, "Oh, you're Mary" or whatever? Or do you stand at the door and ask them their names as they walk in? Or do you ask them name during class? Like what if you forget their name? Do you go and ask it again? Yeah, I go and ask them. Um, so what happened when I was going through the process of trying to improve? I, I started to do like shadow teaching with different instructors, um, and so that meant I was basically teaching in different studios with people I've never met before, and. Uh, I didn't always have access to like an iPad with the names on it. So I was like, I'm just going to have to ask people. You know what I mean? Like, Old I'd, school. Yeah. Like, <laughs> I don't have any kind of technology supporting me. Um, and when I actually got used to that process, it just became like another skill set. At the yeah. start, it felt awkward and it was hard to do. But then I, I was like, no, nah. I gave myself little challenges. Like, I'm going to try and remember everyone's name in this class. Yeah. Um, and that intention was enough to kind of um, bring me back uh, and help me achieve that. I mean, uh, you know, there's different ways. If you forget someone's name, you could you can just be direct about it and say, oh, what was your name again? Sorry. Oh, yep. Um, and most people are like, just that you care enough to want to know. Yeah. Is it like 
is still a huge positive thing. Sometimes you feel like, oh, I should know. Um, but I'd say don't worry about it. Just um, just be genuine and, and your intention to get to know them is the more significant thing than actually not knowing the name in the moment. Um, but like that has a huge impact on your confidence and how you communicate to people because yeah. all of a sudden you're a first-name basis now yeah. um, and your command of the room is much more effortless and people listen to you it like with uh, intention. They're actively listening rather than just like, oh, it's just another instructor. Yeah, you know? I, I 100% agree on asking people, if you forget, just ask them again. And something I've found that worked for me to overcome kind of the feeling of sort of awkwardness of like, oh, crap, I'm, this is the third time I've forgotten your name. <laughs> you know, I have to ask you again. Um, is I just would frame it at the start of class and say, hey, everyone, look, if you're new, I'm, I'm going to do my absolute best to remember your name before the end of class today. Uh, and in order to do that, I'm going to probably have to ask you a couple of times because I've got a memory like a sieve. So, you know, I'd rather get your name right than just call you, hey, you, for, you know, <laughs> the next six months. <laughs> so, um, you know, please forgive me if I, if I forget your name and ask you again because I want to remember it. That's why I'm asking you again. Yeah, people, like, if you were to do, like, randomly do, like, 50 classes and you're to objectively observe the performance of the instructors, there's most people don't know everyone's name every class. So to even want to try is significantly above average. So like it's it's such a, a thing which we see as we don't seem to value it as highly as the clients do. The clients really value it. The clients yeah. really care that you know who they are. So, you know, you can like in, increase your client retention by 25% within the next three weeks if you just make it like a blanket rule that everyone's intention is to get to know everyone more. Like instant results you know, yeah. people feel connected, they want to come back and and that's what I care about. It's like a, so my challenge then was like, okay, now I'm going to and I'm running around teaching workshops and I'm literally meeting people for the first time and I maybe have twelve to twenty four people, maybe run two classes back to back and then get into the content of the, the workshop to try and remember everyone's name again. It's like a I don't have any technology with everyone's name, I just have to get in there and, and do it. But the you can do it. You can do it, and I really recommend it. I think it's anything which makes you uncomfortable is basically something you should spend more time yes, doing. So 100%. if that's what it is for you, do it. Just do more of it, and eventually you'll you'll find, like, little strategies which help you out. And But it's, yeah, I just think it's the simplicity of it is if your intention is you want to do it because you care, you've already won. Like, that's, yeah. that's significant. Agreed. I want to switch tracks now to talk about your impending new business oh yeah yep so um very exciting yeah, yeah. tell us tell us about that okay uh so laura sagas and myself we're teaming up um we're going to create a studio um called rise reformer so rise is obviously paying homage to laura's journey has she created rise pilates and it's such a fantastic word. Like the amount of words we've both looked through, we um, in the last like six the, months, like choosing a baby name. Yeah, <laughs> you can't. Like it's just it's so hard to find. Like, and, and if you do, like if you go through Instagram and you type in any word, you'll find two to three studios with that name instantly. Anyway, especially if you're looking like across different countries. So, um, Rise had to be a part of it, and then we wanted to go with this is really strongly, uh, my opinion, Reformer, because Reformer on its own just clearly states 
Uh, it's well known in Australia definitely as a buzzword for group performer classes. So um, if there is a... Plus it alliterates. It's got R in each word. Yeah. Yeah, there's a couple of things in there which it makes a lot of sense. But, um, yeah, the that's the intention. The intention is to to take our kind of fast experience in different areas, combine it, and and try and create something which is better than what we've both done so far. Yeah. And so Laura's run Rise Pilates in Essendon for, what, six years now? Something like Seven, that? I think. Seven? Yeah. Wow. Yep. Uh, and she's been on the podcast a couple of times. Yep. Um, and... And she so, mentors business owners. Yeah. Um, yeah. Uh, and so, she, so she, I mean, she's uh, she also is you know, very capable of mentoring instructors herself and does that a lot, I know, as well. Um, but really, she brings a lot of expertise in the business side of them. I mean, she knows how to run a Pilates studio standing on her head. Yeah. And you, you know, whilst Laura does have that expertise in mentoring instructors, that's really your passion and your, you know, shining strength. And so is that kind of the division of labour in the business? Yeah, I think Laura's definitely going to be more focused on business operations and I'm going to be more focused focused on um, running like development programs for our instructors. Basically, starting off, I'm going to be taking most of the classes and then we're just going to be like building people up to step in and, and take that on. And I've got a lot of things I want to create, like actualize, like the amount of students I've been to now and the amount of amazing experiences that I've been able to have with different setups, with different um, lighting systems, with different uh, cultures. Like it just feels really important for me now to be able to to create something which is almost like a a synergy of the things that I enjoyed the most Mm -hmm. and that's what I want to do. Um, and I also want to create a place for, for instructors that just love to train hard and get results. And when you say get results, you mean getting stronger. Getting stronger. Mm. A place that they can they can go and it's like uh, that's all we care about. You know, mm. like uh, uh, we care about the clients getting results and our mission statement is to build strength and confidence in everything we do, coming down to how we interact with clients and how we teach exercises in alignment with achieving that objective. Mm. Um, so... To, to bring that to life, I'm super excited about it. So right now we're in negotiations of um, the first lease. So, yeah. Oh, yeah. It's that's a, here in Melbourne, in North Melbourne. North right? Melbourne, yeah. North Melbourne. Yep. Which is the new Essendon, I think. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And then obviously we're pretty ambitious, so we're going to look to get a couple off the ground pretty quick and and um, go international. So, yeah, it's, a, it's an exciting time and I think – it's important to take on different challenges. Like now my objective originally was to, to create a workshop nationally, internationally. I feel like I've I've achieved that now and I want to try a you know, different challenge. And um, if you're going to take on a challenge with a big scale like that, like trying to grow like an international business, you need to have someone which is like rock solid by side that has the same values as you. So I think that's why Laura and I and it's a really solid team. So, yeah. Mm. And, yeah. So, so tell me a, a little bit about the just the sort of basic mechanics of the business. Like, so um, how many reformers do you have? Like, what other, you know, how many classes are you going to have on the schedule? Like, what's the what variety of classes are you going to have on the schedule, or lack of variety of classes are you going to have on the schedule? <laughs> yep. Um, so the idea is that it's going to be our purpose is progression. So we want to basically have the first level of a class. We might call it level one. Um, it's going to be open to all levels of ability 
And the idea is for us to help you get to your next level. Um, so to be achievable for everyone, we just have to be considerate of uh, every exercise, like the load, the stability, and the complexity, because people have different attributes. So if we make sure that every exercise is like a fundamental movement pattern, which is achievable, um, then everyone will be able to do that. And then as we scale, um, if you look at maybe level two, level three, that's going to be basically um, less transition time, more load, um, probably longer duration. So we're just going to be controlling the so things long, which make it hard. Long, longer in the exercise and yeah. less rest in between the exercises. Yeah. So it's basically just going to be scaling it. Um, so our goal is that there's no one we can't actually help progress. Like, you know, a, a challenge that a studio might have is, um, for example, if you have like a dumbbell range from like one to three kilograms, what happens when they get used to three kilograms? You know, like... Two in each hand. Yeah. Like, you have to progress it. You know, like, so because our intention is progression... Um, you have to buy a couple of pairs of fours. We'll just keep, keep going. You know, like, we'll just keep going. So, like, we're not going to well, be... What do you do after the fours are too easy, though? I think there's a thing. I think there's a, there's a solution. Um, yeah. And not like we're going to be, like, going crazy with, like, 40 kilo weights or anything, but um, the, the idea is that this is a place that you can actually come and you can just improve, you know, like a, it's a place that encourages you to like be the best version of yourself. We're going to optimize um, the workout experience for you. So we're going to know who you are. We're going to care about your results. And I was so excited. I just love the idea of making people stronger. It just really fires mm. me up. So it's kind of like a, to me, my objective is like performance enhancement. Like I intentionally use the music to enhance performance. I intentionally use encouragement to enhance performance. I want to create a meritocratic society in which people feel valued and acknowledged for the effort they put in. Like when you intentionally kind of cultivate that, you just see people start to really grow. Mm. So my objective too is to try and upskill our instructors so much that um, that every single one of them just feels amazingly confident and has the ability to, to help all the clients and and so in that process, I'll be going through um, just like the first principles to get them on board, uh, the fundamental stuff that they I think they need to know. But one thing I'll be watching and trying to instill in instructors is the ability to be aware, like to actually have the presence to be able to watch and see what's happening. It's like one thing I like to try and teach people is after you cue an exercise, like you might give the first movement cue, is to pause for like five or ten seconds and just watch. Take a vantage point in the room, have a look. What's happening? How many people are actually doing the thing you intended? And then make your decisions based on that. Um, so that presence, what happens is when instructors are brand new, they're kind of like a bull at the gate and they're just charging around the room and full of energy, which is awesome, but they don't have the awareness yet to notice like the people that are on the wrong springs or not maybe doing the movement, not the way mm-hmm. they wanted to do it, you know? Mm-hmm. So they actually to instill the awareness into the instructors so that they're just completely tuned in, dialed into the room and every decision they're making is based on what they see. Like that has a real impact on the quality of the class and the, and the, and the experience. I remember at the very, when I first, very, very first started teaching, teaching like a side, um, plank on the reformer, you know, hand on the foot bar and kneeling side plank was beginner version, the knees on the carriage pushing out. 
And, you know, one of the classic sort of things that people do is they, they sit back, their butt goes backwards towards their heels as they do it because it makes the centre of mass lower and makes it easier, basically. And people do it without realising they're doing it because it's kind of an awkward position. You're kind of diagonal to gravity. It's hard to know where you are in space. And so people often aren't aware that they're doing that, especially beginners. And I remember as a brand new novice instructor just feeling so intimidated and I'd said to people, like, I was very meticulous about saying, make sure your hips are in line between your knees and your shoulder and it's a straight line, you know, everything neutral, blah, blah, blah. And then these people just blatantly ignored what I'd said, you know. They were just like a Z shape, you know. <laughs> and I was like, oh, well, they kind of misunderstood when I said straight line because those are very simple words that a five-year-old could understand, right? So they must just be ignoring me because they don't want to do it, right? And so I didn't correct them, you know. Because I thought, well, they've made a choice to do it that way. And it's like, of course, now I realise that they had no idea that they weren't straight. They thought they were doing it, you know. (laughs) They thought they were doing it. And they would have valued a correction from me given with, you know, loving intentions to say, hey, Mary, look, I love how hard you're working here, but actually you need to bring your bum about six inches forward, (laughs) you know. (laughs) Yeah, definitely. Like that's the thing we were talking about before about a certain body position with a certain tension to make sure we're targeting the muscle group. Like if I can't be relatively certain about what position I want you to be in, I can't really guarantee a certain outcome for you. Right. So that's the the intentionality there. And the uh, if you look at like what would happen on average, like let's just say you're out of like maybe 70 classes taught in a studio you're going to start to see like things you can anticipate. For yeah. example, the clients with the least amount of confidence, they tend to take up the periphery of the class because they think they yeah. won't be seen. Yeah. Um, it's also hardest to hear and see from those points. Yeah. So those people are more likely not to understand what you have said and probably not going to move the way you want them to move. Yeah. So you can adjust for that by, um, by being aware of it. Yeah. So all the things that might not work well in a class – yeah. And yeah. when you say adjust by being aware, you mean like positioning yourself in the room so you're close yeah. to those people, going over, giving those people hands-on assistance or yep. changing the springs for them if they misheard you and got it wrong or yep. that type of thing. Yeah. yeah. So you can basically guarantee that um, they're getting the same experience you intended and exactly what you said then, just adjusting it, your body position slightly are, are definitely taking the time just to double-check that they're all good. Right. Yeah. Like, or even just stuff like... Uh, you know, and when you're saying, hey, everyone, we're going to do X, Y, Z exercise, so put on you know, one spring for easy, two springs for hard or whatever, uh, going over and actually putting on one spring for Mary because you know that she's just going to be struggling to figure out you know, how to do that yep. and just do it for her as you talk to the rest of the class and say, hey, here's what I want you, want you guys to do. Or put your foot bar up is another classic one where you, there's someone that's just going to struggle with the foot bar and be wrestling with it for five minutes. It's like, yeah, you just go and do it for them and that's where I want it. Good. <laughs> put your foot here, put your other foot there. Yep. Yeah, you're just aware of what's happening and you can just make decisions that um, they basically they're going to minimise the disruptions in the class mm. because mm. you're just kind of preventing them from taking up too much time and energy away from what you're trying to do. Mm. Yeah. So tell me about uh, things that I'm desperately interested in, which is how many reformers you're going to have in Ah, uh, so we're looking at 16. Um and obviously more is better. Um, but I like that. I like that number. Um, and obviously financially, it's pretty good. Um, and it's also fantastic as far as energy goes, like the difference be- between playing in a small stadium or a big stadium. Like, yeah. And the strategies that, that I love to share with people 
makes teaching bigger numbers very achievable because you're focusing on keeping it simple, effective, on a presence, less communication, but more effective. Yeah. Like that enables you to teach bigger numbers easily. You know, if you get really complicated and really wordy, uh, and you have high complexity and low stability, is a nightmare to teach a lot of people at once. Right. Talk to me about high complexity, low stability, because we were talking about this while we we're working out before. Yep. <laughs> yeah. So yep. tell me, get it, jump on your soapbox about that. Oh, right. Um, <laughs> don't need much encouragement to do that. Uh, so basically, my my belief is you could look at every single exercise and exercises can be adjusted and you could basically say that every exercise has you could if you change the position you do it from you can change for example how much stability you have like if you were to do a lunge from the floor um, you know if you're standing on the floor hard flat surface great stability at ground level if you do the lunge standing on a box you know you're a bit higher now if the box is softer you might have a little bit less stability uh, if you do it from the platform you're higher again, you might have less stability. The platforms and all different reformers tend to be usually a bit awkward. Uh, if you do the lunge from the carriage with the body weight on the carriage facing the back, like every version of that, it's technically the same exercise with the same spring, but wherever your body weight is would determine how much stability you have. Right. So if you've got less stability, it's just harder to do. Right. So I like to look at every exercise with that kind of mindset as I can do this same thing in just so many different positions and I'm aware that if I do it uh, in this position, it's got less stability than that one. So I'll just pick the one which is going to be most beneficial for the, the people. You mm. know? So if you've got a room for the people that don't have great balance, I'm never going to make you do a lunge on the machine because there's no benefit um, for you to feel threatened um, and have the risk of falling when we could do the same exercise on the floor. You know, mm. like We can do it longer, we do it better. So you don't need less stability, you don't need high complexity to actually get stronger and less stability, high complexity, just make it harder to teach. It does benefit you to do less stability if you've got the attributes. You know, if that's like the next level up for you, then it's a good challenge. But if I was just going to hand out exercises without considering com complexity or stability, I'm guaranteed to have um, unpleasant experiences in the class. Yeah. I want to jump in there and, and echo what you said, but also... Uh, just from a, like a strength science perspective, like when you introduce, well, you know, the way I think of of, of exercises and progressions and the way we're teaching to breathe is there's three dimensions, which is strength, range of motion and control, right? And you can progress someone along each of those uh, dimensions and, you know, to a certain extent, the more you make one of those things harder – the less you can make the other one harder. Like So it's like you can't lift as much weight in a full split as you can in a half squat, you know. So if you increase range of motion to a large extent, you have to decrease load to a certain extent. And the same, if you're doing a, a, a lunge with one foot on the foot bar and one foot on the carriage, you're not going to be able to do the same load as if you're doing it with one foot on the floor and one foot on the carriage because it's more stable. And when you have greater instability, which you are progressing, like you're progressing control, Right, but you actually have to regress strength most of the time, and range of motion also most of the time. When you when you progress someone along that instability spectrum, like you make it more unstable, they can't get, often can't go. Usually, I'd say, can't go as deep into the movement, so you get you sacrifice range, and also can't have as much load, so you sacrifice strength, because when you have instability, you have to co-contract a lot of muscles around the joint 
in order to maintain your balance and your stability. So you have less force production capability available to actually power the movement, right? So using more of your force production to just like not fall over. And because you're co-contracting those muscles, you can't go as deep into the movement because you're co-contracting, right? Everything's contracted, so you can't (laughs) go deeper. So I think in Pilates, a lot of the time we progress people along the instability or the control aspect a lot. And we think it's making the exercise harder, which it is. But I think a lot of time we forget about particularly the strength, but to a certain extent, the range of motion, you know, dimensions as well. And I think I would, I would like to see more stable exercises, you know, more exercises taught in a stable position, emphasizing range of motion and strength. And then some instability introduced because balance is important and valuable for people but it's not like so many of the health benefits of exercise come from load come from load (laughs) yep yep yeah to me it always comes back to the same thing that instructors feel like they have to be different all the time um and they sometimes value being different over effective so they're going to choose a random movement which is different but doesn't have a lot of benefit um, and the more you do that, the more you go down that path, then the more you run the risk of potentially injuring people because those crazy low-stability exercises, usually with the body weight on the actual reformer, like standing on the machine, there's a percentage of people that just can't balance that well. Yeah. So you just, you're kind of like running the risk every time you go down that way that someone like that won't be able to do it. But I think also... People don't really remember what they did, but they remember how they felt. So those people that don't have the ability to do it very well, they just remember feeling uh, like how do, like like they're going to fall. That's mm-hmm. the, what they're going to remember from your class. Mm-hmm. It's just not worth it, you know. Mm-hmm. Like they're not going to get the benefit from it. So, and yeah. I think you know that comes from you know that that sort of desire to do something different, and you know, and you said like different at the expense of effective, you know. And I, I agree, I agree with you. For you know, I've seen that as well. And you know, maybe it's it's a I'm in a bubble because I see stuff on Instagram a lot. You know, it's like okay, Instagram lends it doesn't lend itself to demonstrating effective group reform exercises. Because right. um, because effective strengthening exercises on a reformer look kind of boring and repetitive you know it's like oh another lunge you know (laughs) 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 um so you know i i understand that instagram isn't necessarily representative of what people are doing you know in their classes necessarily but i think this idea of being different at you know at the expense of effective i think is a powerful one and i think that comes possibly from seeing our role as instructors as more performative and it's like, I'm here to make mm. it fun, right? As opposed to, I'm, you know, like I'm here to give you a good class, right? I'm here to make it fun and exciting and all that, which is like, yeah, you are here to make it fun, but why? People don't mm. say, I want to start Pilates because I need more fun in my life. Yeah. They say, I want to start Pilates because I want to get strong or I want to get rid of my back pain or I want to be more flexible and be able to sit on the floor comfortably, right? And so they, they, it, it needs to be fun so they do it. Yeah. Right, but the fun isn't the end goal, right? The fun is just how you sort of make the medicine go down a bit smoother, right? <laughs> but the actual medicine is the strengthening and the and the increased range of motion that people develop, and to a certain extent, increased control as well. And so I think 
we need to reframe or we need to frame our intention for the class as providing results for people of strength, flexibility and control. And then, yes, we need to, a spoonful of sugar to make the medicine go down. And that's the connection and the intention and the, you know, the, the care that we have and the interaction we have with those people. But that's a, a profoundly different, I think, frame from thinking well, I've got to come up with a fun class mm. because I think, you know, and I know this is your philosophy, the fun comes from feeling stronger and yep. from progressing. Like when you get on the reform, you're like, oh, this is too easy now. Yep. And you're like, crap, I've got to add another spree. Right? Yep. That's motivating. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's real world stuff. Like you t- all the benefits from the class you take with you, you know, like, you know, when you have stronger legs and you're going on a bushwalk on the weekend or riding your bike, you know, you feel that difference. Yeah. You know, like you're sleeping better, you got more confidence. These are tangible, real results that like affect your life. And the best feedback ever is when the clients come back to you and they say, I, I feel amazing. I can do this now. Like yeah. that's that's because they they did your class and that's always going to be, I think, more meaningful as feedback as an instructor than it was fun, you know, like actually getting someone uh, something they couldn't do for themselves, you know, that was the outcome of going to your class. Now, I obviously don't want to, to say that, you know, teaching this way is the opposite of fun, which is completely not in the way at all. I'm just saying that there's more intention to how you select the movements. Like if you had to take one example, like with the lunge and you say, with a light spring, as you bend the front knee and you lean forward, you're loading up your front leg. So your glutes are loaded. The more time you spend in that position, the harder it is. I can be creative with the variations I give you, but I'm just going to make you spend more time at the bottom. So I'll give you variations there rather than just anywhere. So it's kind of serving a greater purpose than just a different movement pattern adding in. So rather than just going, okay, we're going to just keep lunging, but pick up the pink dumbbells and do a bicep curl while you do it, it's like, okay, well, how is that increasing load on the glutes? Mm. Well, it's not. But if we stopped at the bottom and did 10 bicep curls, yeah, that's that's increasing load on the glutes. Yeah, and any the creativity comes from well, what variations you know you can do down there. You know, you can do like a at the bottom, you can do like a tricep extension, lateral raise, row, punches, heel lift, kick and catch, rotation, back extension, whatever. Like that's where your creativity comes in, but it's serving a greater purpose, not just scootering the back leg. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. All those things will contribute to increasing time and attention. So making it harder for your, for your butt. So that's to me is like the, the beauty of it. It's like it, it is fun. But there's so much intention behind it. It's also very meaningful. And then you're guaranteeing people are going to get a great outcome from it. So, yeah, it's, to me, it's very, it's very good. But one thing I found also from doing these different workshops is common terms, people have completely different associations to them. And often disagreements I've had with people in my workshops have been we've said the same word, but we have a different meaning of it. The, the most uh, widely inter- interpreted words out there that I've found so far are words like control and flow. People just have their complete own version of what that means to them. And when it comes to like open discourse, they just might not relate to people because everyone they assume everyone thinks that it's the same definition. So what are, what are some different things that people mean by that word control? Sorry. Um, well, 
Most people that I've found, when I use the word control, they just mean everything has to be slow. Slow. <laughs> slow. Yeah. yeah. But I don't really agree with that at all. Oh, because, you, know, like, you. you can't move fast without control, right. otherwise you just fall over. Try doing a triple backward somersault. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. You know, and when people talk about flow, usually people might, some people might think, all right, we do like a whole bunch of exercises on one spring. Some people mean, oh, we're going to be really efficient with our movement to minimise like the, the transition time. Like it's a complete, it's not completely separate, but it's a different interpretation on what yeah. that word means. Mm. So having like being able to identi- uh, articulate exactly what you mean when you discuss these topics I think will help dialogue between different types of people because that's one thing that's always been amazing to me is what mm. people associate these buzzwords as. Mm. Well, I think stability is another one. I've talked about this you know, a bunch of times on this podcast, so I don't want to go down that road. But basically I think a lot of people just mean keeping still when they say yep. <laughs> stability. Yeah. 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 Uh, uh, stability is, you're right, that's another one. Like uh, Keeping hips stable. It just means like keeping hips still. It means the same thing. Yeah. Yeah, people have – Completely different. Like it also depends on what they've done. Like some people have done like different types of courses in the past. Those words mean different things to people that haven't done those courses, you know. Um, So, yeah, as a general assumption, it's good to try and I'd say ask more questions when you're talking to people that might have a different point of view, dude, because you might actually be in in agreement but you're just using different words in a different way. Yeah. Um, Well, it's interesting, isn't it, when when people say back to the control thing, people say often, you know, I've heard slow and controlled like, 10,000 times, you know, mm. and those words go together, you know, yeah. slow and controlled. But it's like, well, if when we say controlled, we mean slow. It's like when we say slow and controlled, what do we mean? It's mean like slow and slow, you know. <laughs> <laughs> As a, like I've never, I've never heard in a player's context fast and controlled that I can recall. Never heard that. Yeah. Well, you know, if you're going to look at progression and you say basically half the reform exercise that exists, which is spring tension, heavier can be harder yeah. in order for you to when you start to really get heavy you actually have to apply a lot of force and you have to be, you have to be powerful you have to move fast yeah. you know so um, in order for these exercises to work you know when you're queuing them the intention is to make people move with speed you know so that being able to articulate that is a benefit like one thing I like to share with people is making sure that everything is in alignment like the speed at which you say it you know, you want to make sure the verbs are accurate. Like if it's indicating force, it's going to be like a push, a press, a drive, a pull, something with like um, that accurately describes how fast and powerful the movement is. You mm. know, if I say slide or drag, it doesn't really indicate speed or power, no. you yeah. know. But if I say push or pull, it, it's different. So mm. um, being – but having that kind of intention and alignment has to start with – knowing what you're trying to achieve in the beginning, you know. Mm. And I feel like a lot of people, they might, you know, indiscriminately use words like push, pull, slide and drag without considering do I want them to move slow or fast Mm. or is their intention, what, you know, what do I actually want them to get out of it? Because there's always going to be a percentage of people that if you say push, it doesn't matter what spring they're on, they're going to move quick. Mm. Well, I think, I mean, and dear listener, if this doesn't apply to you, you know, let it be water off a duck's back, please. But I think in Pilates, like, if I had to generalise, I would say, like, we always default to moving slow, right? Um, and s- which I don't agree with. And that's not the way Joseph taught, in my view. Now, from the archival footage I've seen of what he used to, he was quite vigorous and fast. And I think that 
you know, I'm sorry I'm stuck on this word control. <laughs> um, but I think that we use it to mean slow, like we said. But I think what we also mean by that is, to, you know, so you're not using like momentum or inertia, right? And I think that is not only like just a, not an accurate use of the word control, uh, but also just not a useful way of thinking about movement. Like controlled, you know, on my definition, means you are able to precisely and accurately accomplish your intended movement path. Right? If you want your foot mm. to land in a certain place, it lands in that place. Yep. If you want the carriage to move at a certain speed and stop at a certain place, it does that, right? If you want the straps to meet in the middle, they do, right? That's that's control. Now, whether you go fast or slow, whether you use momentum or inertia or not, it's like does, that doesn't come into it, right? And for some movements, like if you look at something like a, a backflip, right, you have to use inertia. You know, try doing a backflip slowly. Yep. <laughs> right? You have to, in order to be controlled, you have to use inertia in that movement, right? And so... You know, skilled movement at speed, if we look at like gymnastics, for example, they use a lot of elastic recoil from their tissues. They bounce into things. They use a lot of inertia. They build, they run and, you know, build up momentum. They use a lot of gravity to assist them to get, you know, into more momentum. So all of these, they they use elastic tissue recoil. So all of these things can be part of control. Like controlled is not incompatible with fast, you know, using momentum, using inertia, using recoil. Like, yeah, I'm sorry. I'm sorry I've taken us off on a tangent here. <laughs> no, I, like, I agree with you. And having, like, these kind of conversations are really beneficial for instructors because um, often the default definition is the one that everyone just talks about. So a lot of these things haven't really been challenged in a way which is articulated, easy to understand, but also makes a lot of sense um, that anyone of any level of uh, background in, I don't know, sport, science or physiotherapy or anything, like it's going to make sense for someone who's brand new to someone up to that level. Like, And I think these conversations from yourself, Raf, what they do is they actually give people confidence because if they have never really thought about it or learned about it in a way that they can articulate it themselves, that is default back to what everyone else does. But now you can actually articulate it in a way which gives them confidence when they go to teach the next class and they want to move a certain way, now they can actually back it up with something which is um, proven to be effective and that's one thing I've also found from these workshops. Some people come up to me and they say, Thanks so much for talking about this kind of stuff because it gives me like the approval to do it now. Mm-hmm. I wanted to do it, mm-hmm. but I, no one was really talking about it. No one was really kind of demonstrating it. But just because you're doing it like that, it means I'm allowed to do it now. So you're mm-hmm. giving people permission almost. Mm-hmm. Um, so there's a lot of people out there that, that love this um, way of moving, but potentially everyone they've ever learned from hadn't really defined it in a way which enabled them to do it. But now these new um, conversations are giving people this kind of like feeling of permission that they can actually really do it now and not feel like guilty or bad. It's actually, 
a thing inside them which it felt like they should do it, but they couldn't find any external validation or, or reason that explained it. This is like one of those reasons that people will be go, did you hear that? Did you see that? That's why, mm. you know. It reminds me of something that was really formative in my thinking, which was when I did my final year of high school, we called it VCE here in, in Victoria back in the day when I did it. I did a music subject. Uh, we did music theory. And one of the things we studied was, one of the composers we studied was Claude Debussy. And he was uh, particularly active in the kind of 1890s around that that region. It was just, he's called basically the romantic period is after the classical period where in the classical period of music, we had just Mozart and, and Beethoven where we had these very balanced phrases. So you have like, da, 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 da. Da, 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 da. Like the two phrases balance balance themselves out, or the spine of it. Da 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 da, da 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 da. You know, like they, it's very. Uh, there were lots of rules about how you could compose and which notes were allowed to go with which with which other notes and how long each phrase should be and you know, all. There were lots and lots of rules about and 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 it resulted in some beautiful music. You know, you know hardly anyone would say Mozart. You know, is shit. Right? <laughs> <laughs> so, you know, so classical music is is amazing, and I guess I'm I guess I would say classical Pilates is amazing, right? And it has lots of rules. Um, and so, yeah, not to diss classical music or classical Pilates because I think they're both awesome. But then we came to the Romantic period, where where the composers were like, I stuff all of these rules, you know, and um, you know, Debussy famously wrote this one piece that had what's called parallel descending ninths. So this ninth is an interval, you know, between notes. And it's basically, there's eight notes in a scale. So a ninth is like, it's the first note of the next scale. So it's basically two adjacent notes. It's like, da, 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 da. Those two notes don't go together, right? That You know, if we were going to harmonise, you wouldn't harmonise da with da. You know, they don't go together. And so, but he did it, it's an octave apart. And it's like, and so there was this rule, you don't do parallel descending ninths. And he wrote this whole piece with based on parallel descending ninths. And he and it was very successful. It's amazing. You know, you wouldn't think it would work, but it does sound, and I'll, I'll link to it in the show notes. Um, but he said, and this is the bit that really has just impressed me, and my wife and I basically say this like almost every day to each other, there are no rules, pleasure is the law, Right. And now, I don't believe that is a general rule for life, right? I think there should be rules in life, like you shouldn't be able to go and kill people or, you know, or rob people or whatever. I think rules do have a place. And I think rules also have a place in Pilates, but I think the idea that really just it, I found so powerful there is that we often just put these sort of artificial constraints on ourselves about how we should or shouldn't you know, behave in a certain context because I was trained by Bassi or because I was trained by Stott or because, you know, Romana said or because, you know, it's one of the principles of Pilates or whatever. Like, it's like, well, what if we just did it different? You know, (laughs) what would happen? (laughs) And sometimes the answer is like, no, it wouldn't work, right, if you did it different. And sometimes the answer is like, ah, that's pretty awesome. Yep. Yep. Yeah, well, that's, I think, the people that are the best at anything, they always tend to break the rules anyway, you know, because like, they understand it in a different way. I mean, the rules in themselves, they're only going to be an effect- effective to a certain extent because they're kind of like covering the bases of the norms. But um, I, to give an example with the reformer, if you were to say, all right, everyone, 
spring tension for this exercise, blue beginner, yellow intermediate, no spring advanced. For like 60 to 70% of the population, that is right. But if you're significantly heavier or significantly lighter, it's, you're going to have the same experience. So the rules don't, they're kind of effective at getting like the most people having that experience, but they're not really effective ultimately. Right. So it's more about your understanding rather than the rules. So the deeper you go into understanding the how and the why, um, it gives you that ability to adapt and try different variations and, and yeah, you have much more intention behind everything you do. And I think that's the most exciting part. It's like whenever you do someone else's class, is my challenge to you is after the class, go up and ask the instructor, why did you do that a certain way? Maybe why did you say it like that or, or why did you connect those exercises together? Ask them why because the the more you can understand the intention behind it, that automatically makes you, um, it's like an extra advantage when it comes to creating your next class because now it's not just two movements put together but there's maybe there's an objective to it. So the more variety of different people you learn from, the more insights you get and eventually it's like this huge collage of information and then you can just start to prioritise it in your own way. Mm. My goal was always to prioritise it based on effectiveness to find things that work the best for the most amount of people. Um, but, you know, you can have your own mission and find out different things that you love, yeah. And, you know, that's that's probably, I would say, the thing that I admire about you the most is that you have, the, you know, you're a very independent thinker and you've gone your own way and you've followed your own North Star and, you've, you know, you've created something new in the world, you know, which is very admirable and I, I think it's awesome. Uh, and I'm sorry, I, I'm I'm still stuck on something you said, like, <laughs> a couple of minutes ago um, about that, you know, people saying to you in your workshops, oh, thanks for, for sharing this because now I feel I have permission to do this, yeah. you know, because you're doing it. Right? Right. Uh, but I've wanted to do this. I've wanted to do this, but I just hadn't felt I was, like, allowed yeah. to do it. Yep. And it another book that was – a book that was very – you know, when I was a teenager and I was reading, like, science fantasy, you know, books like Teenage Boys Do – there was this book called Magician by Raymond Feist, um, which was a great book when I was 16, probably wouldn't enjoy it now, but there was this one passage in it where this guy, this young, the, the hero called Pug, he's an apprentice magician, and he's doing his first part of the apprenticeship of becoming a magician, and they put him in a, this like little cell, and he has to just sit in there all day and meditate or something, and it's boring as anything, so he hates it, you know, it's a terrible thing. And and every day his master comes, the magician who's his teacher, and you know, gives him these lessons and it's really boring. He just makes him add up these numbers and stuff he doesn't understand. And he, every day, Pug says, oh, Master, when, you know, when will I be able to leave this cell and progress onto my training? And the Master says, not yet. You know. And then one day, Pug just gets up and the Master comes in and Pug says, my place is no longer here. And the Master says, okay, well, let's go then. <laughs> and takes him on to the next phase of his training. And it really made me think of what you said there about, about someone saying, like, I felt like I didn't have permission you know, to do this, and you gave you gave them permission. It's like, well, dear listener, it's like you don't need permission. You can give yourself permission. You know, and Nathan, that's what I admire about what you've done is you just gave yourself permission <laughs> to do this, right? Yeah, basically. I was like, oh, I'll do it. Yep, okay. Um, just figuring out how, really. Yeah, but I think it was just a burning desire because I, I felt that there was a gap, uh, and there's. There's a lot of people out there that want new ideas and there's a lot of 
the vast, 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 silent majority out there is people that love to work out, love to get stronger, believe in progression, have passion. Um, that's the majority of people, yeah. even in even in Pilates, the majority of people are like that. And but the 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 ones that tend to get the most airtime are the the ones that are the most critical. So I think there's still like a little bit of fear out there of being outside you know, air quotes, the norm, because you're just going to cop a lot of criticism from a bunch of random people you don't even know. So um, people uh, feel probably restricted on kind of being and teaching and exactly the way they want because they just don't want to be criticised by random groups of people. Um, Mm. But I think if you're you're committed to delivering the best outcomes for your clients, it doesn't matter what anyone says. Yeah, and I think that fear is justified because social media mobs are a real thing yeah. and Pilates police are a real thing. I mean, there's not literally Pilates police, but there are people who behave in a manner that's like, oh, they're telling everyone how they can and can't you know, do Pilates and that's a real thing. But my experience, you know, of being attacked by an Instagram mob last year, well, you were part of that as well. Mm. Is like after blocking twelve people, my news feed went silent and pleasant again. Yeah, that's you know, like yeah, it's, it's, it's true. It's there's hardly it wasn't many. Like you say, the vast majority mm. don't don't feel that way. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. It's it's all it's all about perception, you know. I think this reminds me of a there's something to do with like a, a wartime story back in the day. I think you know they used to have. Back in the day, when they'd organised like a, a place and a time to have a battle, um, the night before the like the opposing um, countries or tribes or whatever would camp either side. So a strategy from one side was just to light three times as many fires to give the appearance of having a way bigger voice or bigger army, and that would intimidate the other army because they thought, "Fuck! Look how many campfires they've got. They have like three times as many people as us." You know, so people start to like drift away and try and escape because they, they thought they're going to lose. In reality, the teams are the same size, but it's just the perception of of size and strength. Um, and I think that's what social media can do. Is if you know people coordinate their activities with that negative intention, it gives the perception of like a large amount of people that might disagree yeah. with you or not like you. But the reality is, it's not like that at all. No. You know, the most people out there are pretty indifferent. And people forget about things literally the next day. Yeah. Like um, within a week, no one can remember it anyway. So right. we, yeah, it's, it was a pretty interesting lesson actually. Um, and I feel like it was, it gives me a lot more empathy for people that are actually in the spotlight a lot because a lot of the information that we see about other people doesn't come from them. Yeah. So people have the ability to, to skew things in any way and to automatically assume that everything you hear is actually correct or hasn't been adjusted to suit a certain narrative of a certain agenda. It makes me think that anytime I see anything on the news about anyone, even if it's a politician or a sports person, I think, oh, I can't trust it. Yeah. You know, because there's a whole bunch of people out there that would profit from that negative agenda, you know. Right. Mm. Yeah. And so, you know, dear listener, if you're out there thinking, gee, I'd like to teach a bit differently or, you know, whatever, but I don't feel like I've got permission. Well, firstly, I think I can speak on behalf of Nathan as well. We, we give you permission. <laughs> to do. Not that you need it from you us. Do, well, but. yeah, I think more to the point, you don't need anyone's permission, you don't need our permission, you don't need anyone else's permission. And if there's anyone out there in the world who thinks that you do need their permission, just block them. Yeah. Basically, yeah. That's, um, I think it's a, 
the reality is, is we don't actually need to be friends with everybody. Um, and if your greatest objective is to actually help the people that are with you and the methods you're applying to do that, uh, intending to help people, how can that be bad? You know what I mean? Like that's, and if, you know, people are spending their time searching for people to attack online, obviously they don't have much going on, you know, because if they're doing something significant, they wouldn't have time to do that. So right. it's just... Uh, I, I think um, also you can't, you know, as you as you have more impact on the world, you know, you impact more people, you, you know, increase the chance that you're going to upset someone because... Just because of statistics, right? So if I say, I don't know, if you and I are sitting here and I say, I think pineapple goes on pizza, right? You'd probably be fine with that, right? You might agree or disagree, but you probably wouldn't get upset about it, yeah. right? But if I say that to a room of a thousand people, there's a good chance someone's going to get upset about it, right? If I say it to a million people or 10 million people or a hundred million people, it's almost certain. It's like it's a hundred percent certainty that someone's going to get upset about it. Yeah. And so what I said didn't change. It's just the number of people I put that message in front of. And it's like there's, you know, the people are on a spectrum and there's, you know, people who are batshit crazy at one end, right? <laughs> and there's people who are like Zen Buddhists, you know, at the other end, right? Yeah. And if you're in front of 100 million people, there's going to be some batshit crazy people in that crowd, right? So, yeah. so there's nothing you could say or do or not say or not do that would not offend certain people, yeah. right? And so the more impact you have on the world, the more chance that someone's going to get upset about it, right? And this applies to your listener to you. Even if you're thinking like, oh, I don't have 100 million people. It's like, yeah, but you've got 12 people in your math class at the, at the church hall, right? You're impacting people, right? And the more people you impact, the more chance, you know, one of them's going to get upset at some seemingly innocuous thing you said, like pineapple goes on pizza or, you know, dogs are better than cats or coffee's better than tea or whatever, yeah. right? Or hey, let's spend more time in this lunch, right? <laughs> <laughs> Everyone disagrees. <laughs> and, 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 and I think what, you know, so I think offending people, whilst you shouldn't go out of your way to offend people, and I certainly don't, it is, to, it is the price of impact. You cannot impact people to any significant degree without offending someone. And so your goal should not be to never offend anyone because if you if that's your goal, you have to do nothing, say nothing, be nothing, right? And that's a quote. I can't remember who said it, but it's a bloody good one. And I think, you know, what we should focus on is the positive impact that we're having, right? So if we said, let's spend more time at the bottom of the lunch, right? So someone got, you know, their knickers in a twist about that on social media or whatever. It's like, okay, what about the clients in the room, you know? Had it, what was their what was the outcome for them? Yeah, <laughs> you know. Yeah, and and I and I I I I think if we focus on the positive impact that we're having, and disregard the naysayers, and when I say disregard, I mean just like literally block them, don't return their calls, you know, etc. Um, you don't need to come up with a good response. You don't need to justify. You just need to just not have anything to do with them. Mm. And yeah, focus on the people who are positively impact, who do like pineapple and pizza. You know. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, it's almost like a life lesson really. Um that's gonna help everybody. And it's just inevitable that if you do become a more authentic version of yourself, then you actually do seem to um have these random situations that come out of that. Mm. Uh but I'd, I'd say it's definitely worth it though, because if you looked at it and the the actual the amount of people that would have that kind of negative reaction versus the positive. 
it's like you yeah. can't compare them. No. It's like they're not nowhere yeah. near. Like, you know, for the 12 people that don't like you, there's probably like 20,000 people that listen to you every week. You know what I mean? Yeah. That's that's the reality. So more, I'd say, probably, you know. And your reach is significant. Like the places I've been, um, people always talk highly of you and there's so many people in so many countries that have done breathe courses or doing breathe courses, you know. And I think it might be easy to kind of, that would become normal now, but to actually physically go to different countries and to speak to people that are are doing it, it's like, it's pretty good. That's why I reckon you should do some kind of international tour. I reckon you should because you give people a chance to get it. Because you did a workshop tour anyway. In around Australia, right? Mm. Yeah. So um, I remember hearing that and that was definitely a motivation for me. I thought, oh, that seems like the way you could go forward because it's like a good experience to do. Um, but, yeah, I think that would be huge. I think you'd have a huge attendances in America and England and Europe and stuff. Yeah, it would be cool. Good idea. Maybe I'll get a few pointers from you. Yeah. <laughs> uh, is there anything else or are we done? Uh, I think um, – yeah, I'm pretty. I'm pretty stoked. I just, uh, I feel very grateful um, that you know this journey has evolved the way it has. You know that that like one of my goals at the start of 2022 was I wanted to try and I wanted to 10x my income, but also wanted to separate my time for money. And I was like looking for strategies and and potentially ways to do that. And I think if you're an instructor out there. Um, that's reached like your maximum energy output, like you're teaching the most amount of classes a week and and you can't really get any more income from those classes and you're looking to generate different forms of income, separating your time for money by creating like products or online things is definitely going to be a good benefit to you. But just to say that it's not impossible, I mean, this morning I was looking at my Facebook uh, thing and it had like a, you know, those memories that come up it's like two years ago I think we were sitting in lockdown or something yeah. you know so everything that I've that's happened in the last two years was literally just a, a dream back then so you know you just have to um, get the best information you can from people that have done the thing you want to do and just start uh, start the process uh, as soon as possible and yeah and you figure it out I mean the more one thing I found that's really helped me too actually is Whenever I was going into a new phase of my life and I was going to be doing something which would demand more for myself, the first thing I focused on was my fitness. I just wanted to get as strong as I could, as fit as I could, because the, the stress that you take on when you take on a new challenge, yeah. it might be financially or it might be all the different types of stress that you can have, you need a strong body and a strong mind to be able to deal with that. And the discipline of working out physically, it just gives you an edge. Like um, like the stuff I'm doing at the moment, like I started a routine when I go back from my New Zealand trip. So, like, I'm running 7Ks in the morning, then I get to the gym and do, like, weightlifting, and then I do sauna, and then I jump in the ocean. So it's pretty cold in Victoria. Um, 10 minutes in the ocean, um, back in the sauna, and then I walk back. So my morning... You wake after that. Yeah. <laughs> so my morning, like, is structured, and um, I will do an hours and get into bed earlier, um, eating better, um, and... I already feel the difference in my body. I've got more energy. Um, but at the same time, now I'm taking on these different challenges like negotiating leases and, and you know. So 
I need to have a strong body and a strong mind to take on this next level, to be the next level of myself. So um, potentially, if you're looking to challenge yourself and um, to take on your next level, um, double down on your fitness to get a really good routine, build yourself up. And that's just, I think it's you're more risk. You can just take more risk and more uncertainty easier if you've got a stronger body and a stronger mind. So it changes your perception of risk too. And you actually kind of seek it because you get so used to um, that progressive overload and working against resistance that resistance in other forms doesn't seem as bad anymore. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I agree. So if you force yourself to struggle in that way, when different struggles arise, it's just like you already know how to deal with it. So. Yeah. Um, yeah, and I think that, uh, you know, as soon as I said while we are working out that, you know, you've got a, a quite a, a unique skill set as a reformer instructor, where you've developed that skill set yourself. But I think the thing that really has, you know, combined with that to, to, to enable your success is your entrepreneurial thinking and the skill set that you've built around entrepreneurship. And I think that is, you know, what you said before about decoupling your time from money and that, yeah, anyone can do that. Like, you know, if, if you're out there listening to this and you think you're like, gee, I've, you know, I'm charging as much as I can charge, I'm seeing as many clients as I can see and I'm still not making a great living, it's like, well, you can make an incredible living with your Pilates skill set, but you have to combine it with entrepreneurial thinking and you have to figure out how to solve more problems or the, for more people or solve the problem, the same problem for people who can afford to pay more for it. Or, or both, yep. um, or solve it in a way that requires less effort on your part. Um, and if you can, you know, and that's that's what I mean by entrepreneurial thinking, right? So how can I deliver this result to a larger number of people without working more? Or how can I deliver a better result, you know, to more to people who can afford to pay more for it? Like that's what I mean by entrepreneurial thinking. If you can combine that with your Pilates, existing Pilates skills or even upgraded Pilates skills, like the really the sky is the limit. If you look at some of the people on, you know, in the stratosphere of, you know, entrepreneurship at the moment, like someone I follow on YouTube, Mr. Beast, he's got mm. the biggest ever YouTube channel. He's like a freaking multi, multi-billionaire at this point, you know. Um, and he's like, he's... Literally got no skills apart from just the things he's developed as a content creator. He just learned on the job and got really good at it. Yep. And he's good at creating content. And he's also really good at creating content that people like, you yep. know. And then he's figured out ways to monetize that content. But, like, he's just a guy who was making videos in his back room. He's, like, he's not particularly good looking. He's not particularly, like, a gifted singer or orator or he's not funny, he's not, like, he, you know, he doesn't have any of those natural gifts, right? But he's just taken, like, what the other 99 million people on YouTube are doing, just making videos about stuff, and he's just he put done it in a way that, that that connects with people in a more meaningful way, and, and that people are prepared to pay for, you know? And now he's got, like, Beast Burger and all these different spin-offs. Yep. And, you know, I'm sure there are, content created on YouTube just going, oh, I'm making videos and I'm getting 12 views and no one's, you know, it's like this is this is a mugs game. But it's like, well, you you can make you can make as much money as you want 
with any skill set if you only figure out how to use that skill set to help enough people get what they want. Mm. I think that's a good segue into the change you've made recently, going from um, changing markets, predominantly from Australia to the US market. Yes, it looks like this conversation is not over. And sadly, listeners, that is where we're going to leave Raphael and Nathan. The conversation will continue, though next episode will air the second part of this combo, so stay tuned. After two exercise science degrees and over a decade and a half of reading research daily, I've condensed all the current science on rehab into a program called the Clinical Exercise Specialist Rehabilitation. Inside the program, I'll teach you to do three things. One, deeply understand how the body works. Two, confidently and expertly rehab literally any client. And three, get results for your clients. So ultimately, your clients tell their friends and you become known as the go-to expert in your area. This program is completely unlike any education you've done before, even if you've studied with us before, because of the way we've built the learning design. It's an online, flexible, skill-based learning program, which means you keep doing the skills under supervision until you're good at them. It's more of a mentorship model than a traditional course model. So rather than rushing through the content and having sort of one go at everything, you actually just practice live and we give you feedback and guidance and we dialogue and explore concepts together until you're highly skilled and confident. We just keep working the material until you get it. It's not rushed at all. It's not about ticking off the content. It's about engaging, practicing and applying it until you own it. This is a life-changing program, not some weekend certification. I've put my heart and soul into building this, and I can't wait to share it with you and help you discover your genius for anatomy and rehab. Now, because of the highly interactive nature of this program, we're only taking on 12 students worldwide. The program starts on March the 1st, and the first 12 qualified people to apply will be allowed to enroll. So if you're interested in learning more, click the link in the show notes and download the course guide or go to breathe-education.com and click on the clinical certification menu in uh, link in the top menu. That's breathe-education.com and click on the clinical certification link in the top menu.